from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's such a pleasant feeling to be able to take both sides of an issue in a fraught political campaign. Enjoying that uh, privileged position this week, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, of course. According to the Tampa Bay Times, he would allow offshore oil drilling and fracking in the United States if he were president, as long as it's not in Florida. Can we have a hand for the gentleman? I'll tell you where to put it. The uh, position is part of DeSantis's plan to, quote, unleash American energy independence, unquote, while at the same time maintaining Florida as the only Gulf state without rigs, refineries, and pipelines dotting the coast, according to the Tampa Bay Times, which sits right there. Quote, we have a constitutional amendment that does not allow offshore drilling. By we, he means Florida. And so that's something we honor, DeSantis said about Florida, while revealing his economic plan in New Hampshire. Quote, that is not saying I think that should apply to Louisiana or Texas. So that will continue. Unquote, DeSantis. He's argued that the protection of Florida's coastlines is essential to the state's economy. You know, like Louisiana's economy eh, doesn't need that coast. In 2022, he campaigned for re-election as governor on protecting Florida's beaches from oil spills and working with the state legislature to ban fracking across the state. That fracking ban hasn't come to fruition. Now, as a presidential candidate, DeSantis says he supports expanding offshore drilling and natural gas production and ensuring an en energy is produced domestically and says such actions could help the nation's economy. Quote, We will achieve energy independence by using our domestic resources. The United States has the best oil and gas resources in the world. We have an incredible in opportunity to leverage this competitive advantage for the good of our economy. Unquote. The uh, Tampa Bay Times points out his positions on energy kind of what President Biden's agenda has looked like in the last three years. The Biden administration, in case you didn't know, is on track to break domestic oil production records that were set by its predecessor. Despite previous calls for no more drilling, the Biden administration has moved forward on several projects expanding the offshore oil industry the Department of Interior is expected to release a five-year offshore drilling plan at the end of the year. That'll uh, go far to determine the future of the industry in the United States. DeSantis hasn't said much about his views on investing in renewable energy. He said during his economic rollout, he would reverse the Biden administration's policy, quote, trying to force Americans to buy electric cars, unquote. You've seen the federal cops at your front door, right? In Florida, DeSantis has signed legislation prohibiting public officials from considering clean energy and climate change when making investments, unless those goals are strictly 
financial considerations. On a Fox News interview a couple months ago, he, Governor DeSantis, referred to climate change as, quote, the politicization of weather, unquote. Yeah, he's he's in a blessed position, as long as the money holds out. Hello, welcome to the show.
From Santa Monica, California, home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Associated Press goes where not a lot of people went this week in trying to um, get inside and down into the reality of long COVID. How profound a toll COVID-19 has taken on the nation's heart health, says the AP, is only starting to emerge years into the pandemic. Quote, we're seeing effects on the heart and the vascular system that really outnumbers, unfortunately, effects on other organ systems. That's uh, the opinion of Dr. Susan Cheng, a cardiologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA. It's not only an issue for long COVID patients, for up to a year after a case of COVID-19, people may be at increased risk of developing a new heart-related problem. Anything from bl your blood clots and your regular heartbeats to a heart attack, even if they initially seem to recover just fine. Among the unknowns, who's most, most likely to experience these after effects? Are they reversible or a warning sign of more heart disease later in life? Quote, we're about to exit this pandemic as even a sicker nation, unquote, because of virus-related heart trouble, said Dr. Ziad Ali from Washington University. He helped sound the alarm about lingering health problems. The consequences, he added, quote, will likely reverberate for generations, unquote. Hey, that's long reverb. Heart disease has long been the top killer in the nation and the world, but in the U.S., heart-related death rates had fallen to record lows just before the pandemic. COVID-19 erased a decade of that progress, according to Dr. Cheng. Heart attack caused deaths rose during every virus surge. Worse, young people aren't supposed to have heart attacks, but Cheng's research documented a nearly 30% increase in heart attack deaths among 25 to 44 year olds in the pandemic's first two years. Would that be, would that be uh, generation, that would be generation heart. An ominous sign the trouble may continue. High blood pressure is one of the biggest risks for heart disease. And quote, people's blood pressure has actually measurably gone up over the course of the pandemic, she says. Cardiovascular systems make up part of what's long, uh, known as long COVID. That's a catch-all term for dozens of health issues, including fatigue and frame blog, uh, brain fog. The National Institutes of Health is beginning small studies of a few possible treatments for certain long COVID symptoms, including a heartbeat problem. It goes, ba-doom, ba-doom. But Cheng said patients and doctors alike need to know that sometimes cardiovascular trouble is the first or main symptom of damage the coronavirus left behind. Dr. Amanda Verma is uh, part of a cardiology team that studied a small group of patients with perplexing heart symptoms and found abnormalities in blood flow. Tom? Oh, that would be blood flow. Mm -hmm. That might be part of the problem. Blood flow jumps when people move around and subsides during rest. So far, 
Makes sense. But some long COVID patients don't get enough of a drop during rest because the fight-or-flight system that controls stress reactions stays activated, according to Verma. Some also have trouble with the lining of their small blood vessels, not dilating and constricting properly to move blood through, she says. Would you like to see a more upscale lining? Hoping that that helped explain some of uh, the symptoms she sees, Verma prescribed some heart medicines that dilate blood vessels and others to dampen that flight or flight, fight or flight response. How big is the post-COVID heart risk? To find out Al Ali, the doctor I mentioned earlier, analyzed medical records from a massive, massive Veterans Administration database. People who had survived COVID early in the pandemic were more likely to experience abnormal heartbeats, blood clots, chest pain, and palpitations, even heart attacks and strokes up to a year later, compared to the uninfected, even middle-aged people without prior signs of heart disease. Based on those findings, Al Andy estimated four of every hundred people need care for some kind of heart-related symptom in the year after recovering from COVID. Per person, that's a small risk, but he said the pandemic's sheer enormity means it adds up to millions left with at least some cardiovascular symptom. While a reinfection might still cause trouble, Ali's now studying whether that overall risk dropped thanks to vaccination and milder strains of the virus. More recent research confirms the need to better understand and address these cardiac aftershocks. An analysis this past spring of a large U.S. insurance database found long COVID patients were about twice as likely to seek care for cardiovascular problems, including your clots, your abnormal heartbeats, or stroke in the year after infection, compared to similar patients who'd avoided COVID-19. A post-infection link to heart damage isn't that surprising, Verma noted. She pointed to rheumatic fever in it an inflammatory reaction to untreated strep throat, especially before antibiotics were common, that scars the heart's valve. Is this going to become the next rheumatic heart disease? She asks. She answers, we don't know. Al-Ali says there's a simple take-home message. You can't change your history of COVID-19 infections, but if you've ignored other heart risks, high cholesterol, blood pressure, poorly controlled diabetes, or smoking. Now's the time to change that. Those are the ones, he said, we can do something about. And I think they're more important now than they were in 2019. Well, what isn't? And now, something you thought you knew revealed to be not true. Welcome to this smart, smart world. It's a smart world after all It's a smart world after all It's a smart world after all It's a smart, smart world Remember a couple of weeks ago There was a, a spate of news stories about this thing called LK99 It was supposed to be the first time science had found a superconductor at normal, you know, room temperatures 
as opposed to the only place uh, we mankind had found superconductors previously, which was at very, very low temperatures. Guess what? It's not true. Enthusiasm over the purported room temperature superconductor LK99 is waning as more research teams are unable to reproduce the original findings. No. In fact, one at a university has concluded it's not a superconductor at all. It's not even on the train. Research. This is from the Register, the British Tech Journal. Researchers around the world are racing to reproduce the findings from the Quantum Energy Research Center in Seoul. That's where the claim of a material called LK99 has superconducting super properties at room temperatures came from. The growing consensus appears to be that this might not be the long-sought room temperature superconductor science and industry have been hoping for. I, I kind of hoped for it too, you know, in my kind of semi-conscious hope department. Nonetheless, stocks and companies linked to superconductor technology have dropped, according to Bloomberg, after taking off following the publication of the original report all the way back last month. The biggest blow, perhaps, came from the University of Maryland's Condensed Matter Theory Center, your CMTC. That's a theoretical research facility set up to maintain sustained excellence in theoretical condensed matter physics, the study of solids and liquids. Sustaining excellence is a good thing, as opposed to that uh, on and off excellence. In a series of tweets, CMTC summed up the latest findings from various research teams working on LK99, or its real name, copper-doped lead apatite, and concluded, quote, with a great deal of sadness, we now believe that the game is over. LK99 is not a superconductor, not even at room temperature or at very low temperatures. It is a very highly resistive, poor quality material. The research efforts included those of the National Taiwan University. It reported the material produced in their lab exhibited some diamagnetic properties, but did not have the hallmarks of superconductivity and zero resistance was not observed. Also mentioned was the National Physical Lab of India. They reported, likewise, observing diamagnetism, but not superconductivity and the International Center for Quantum Materials in China, which found a small amount of ferromagnetism and tiny flakes of LK99, but again, no per superconductivity. In fact, several of the research teams reported insulating resistivity actually increasing with decreasing temperature, leading the CMTC team to remark that LK99, in fact, appears to be an anti- superconductor. Close. And something else we thought was a thing may in fact not be a thing. Michael White was appointed to uh, be the chief executive in charge of the metaverse efforts at the Disney company. You recall the metaverse was this... Um, non-existent world that uh, you could get enter, that businesses could 
build storefronts in. Uh, it was pushed most avidly by a company that changed its, changed its name to Meta because it was so focused on the metaverse, the former Facebook. Well, Michael White is exiting Disney shortly after its decision to shut down its metaverse division earlier this year. Ain't gonna be no Mickey Mouse metaverse, baby. In February 22, the media supergiant announced its plan to launch a series of metaverse-focused strategies within its Storytelling and Consumer Experiences division. White joined Disney in 2011, was previously the company's Senior Vice President of Consumer Experiences at Platforms. There's a contemporary-sounding job. He was appointed by Disney's then-chief executive, Bob Chapek, to uh, run the metaverse thing. His appointment occurred at a time when several global brands announced plans to capitalize on the hype. Interest in the trend, you may have noticed, has since waned. You didn't spend any time in the metaverse yesterday, did you? I did not. Major platforms are seeing a steep decline in daily active users. In an internal memo released at the time that uh, Disney set up the division, JPEG called the metaverse, quote, the next great storytelling frontier and a perfect place for the company to pursue its strategic pillars of storytelling excellence, innovation, and audience focus. We have an opportunity to connect these universes and create an entirely new paradigm for how audiences experience and engage with our stories. Unquote. JPEG. Last November, he was let go from his role at Disney, replaced by current CEO Bob Iger. March of this year, Disney announced plans to undergo a broader restructuring process and uh, fire 7,000 people. The Metaverse division among its, as we say in the business, final cuts. With the exception of White, all 50 members of the Metavision team were laid off. Not digitally, just fired. Disney's also joined other major brands in ditching Metaverse-focused ambition within the last year. Microsoft also laid off 100 employees from a Metaverse core team. Close to 4,000 jobs at Meta itself have been slashed, including portions of its Reality Labs team. Everybody uh, declined to comment on the thing. Went into their metaverses to hide. And a study into the feasibility of hacking low Earth orbit satellites reveals it's uh, maybe too easy to do. In a presentation at the Black Hat, Black Hat Security Conference in Vegas, uh, Johann Wilbold, a PhD student at Ruhr University in Germany, explained he'd been investigating the security of satellites. He studied three types of orbital machinery, found that many were utterly defenseless against remote takeover because they lack the most basic security systems. Quote, people think that satellites are secure. 
Those are expensive assets, and they should have encryption and authentication. I assume the criminals think the same, and they're too hard to target, and you need to be some kind of cryptography genius? Maybe, said Will Bold. Maybe it wasn't a good idea to give this talk. Unquote. Satellite operators have been lucky so far. The prevailing wisdom is that hacking this kind of equipment would be prohibitively expensive due to the high cost of ground stations that communicate with the orbital birds, and that such hardware benefited from security by obs obscurity. Getting hold of the details of the firmware would be too difficult. As the research now indicates, neither assumption is true. So, uh, if you're free this afternoon, let's go hack a satellite. What do you say? Nasci lá na Bahia de Mucama com feitor. Meu pai dormia em cama, minha mãe pisador. Meu pai só dizia assim, venha cá. Minha mãe dizia assim, sem falar. Mulher que fala muito, perde logo seu amor. Mulher que fala muito, perde logo seu amor. From Santa Monica, this is Luz Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, 
News of the Godly. And this is from a London-based newspaper, The Guardian. But it's not about London. After the U.S.'s second-oldest Roman Catholic archdiocese filed for bankruptcy protection three years ago, attorneys for people claiming sexual abuse at the hands of the organization's clergymen reviewed thousands of records outlining how the church managed the careers of priests and deacons faced with substantial allegations. Glaring, glaringly missing from these documents is any plan by which the Archdiocese of New Orleans could reliably protect children from contact with clerics who had been suspended from public ministry following molestation allegations, but who for years stayed in close proximity to and were financially supported by the church. Yes, this is about New Orleans, but it's from The Guardian in London. I know, wacky, isn't it? The Archdiocese's failure to implement a meaningful oversight plan for suspected still-living predator priests and deacons, as was repeatedly recommended to the organization, is outlined in a 48-page memo secretly prepared by a team of attorneys representing some people pursuing clerical abuse claims through the bankruptcy proceeding. The accuser's lawyers have turned it over to law enforcement in what was meant to be a summary of crimes they believed could still be prosecuted. That, belief, that brief has not led to any substantial action from authorities. And since uh, broad confidentiality rules apply to bankruptcy, parties on all sides of the case have sought to keep its contents from becoming public. Nevertheless, the Guardian obtained a copy of the memo. It vividly demonstrates the limits of measures that the church leaders in a region with about a half a million Catholics have taken, ostensibly to help put a distance between accused clerics and children, as well as adults who are described as vulnerable. At least 17 of the clergymen were still living, either at the time they were included on the list of credibly accused clerics that the uh, Archdiocese released in 2018, or when they were added to that roster during several subsequent revisions. According to the memo's authors, one of the most egregious examples in that group was Gerard Howell, permanently removed from active ministry about 30 years earlier over credible accusations he had molested children in Louisiana's deaf community in the 1960s and 70s. I said deaf community. Months after becoming New Orleans Archbishop in the summer of 2009, the Archbishop sent Howell, the Archbishop being Gregory Amon, to be evacu evaluated during an inpatient stay at a uh, center that's been known nationally for providing behavioral health treatment to clergy. The Archdiocese at the time, since 2009, was reviewing its policies for handling priests and deacons accused of abuse. The staff diagnosed Howell with having pedophilia and narcissistic personality disorder. That's a good combination. Help me. The treatment team recommended, quote, extensive monitoring, unquote, by a person who would act similar to a parole officer, conducting lie detector tests and in-person visits at random, while requiring Howell to keep a daily log 
of his travels and activities. The Archbishop also directly received a report from a psychologist who described Howell as someone who will, quote, always be high risk, unquote. That's a t-shirt. He was accused of at least 24 cases of molestation, many victims being deaf children, according to the memo. Quote, with a pedophile walk, one cannot count on the aging process to naturally diminish deviant arousal or extinguish sexually abusive behavior, unquote, the psychologist told the uh, Archbishop about Howell, who's now in his mid-80s. Congratulations, sir. The best strategy to manage risk is to eliminate opportunities for access to young children, unquote. So the Archdiocese ultimately sent Howell to an abbey in South Dakota, which would be counted on to take steps, quote, to ensure he would not come into contact with children, unquote, and would also send monthly reports about him to New Orleans church superiors. The memo's authors could only find three letters about Howell to the archdiocese from the abbey in South Dakota. Another local priest in the area who was also supposed to be monitored for, um, is molesting or otherwise harassing multiple teenage boys whom he met, met through work. He was supposed to be monitored. He uh, knew of no monitoring being uh, placed on him when he sat for a deposition a couple of years ago. That deposition has otherwise been kept under seal and out of public view. According to the document, during the deposition, that second priest named Hecker admitted to viewing images depicting child sexual abuse if it appeared on his computer whenever he occasionally went searching for pornography online. The archdiocese's failure to follow through on such recommendations recommendations for monitoring is not just embarrassing, say the authors of the memo. It enabled one of the organization's most notorious suspected ever suspected abusers ever, besides Hecker, to come into close publicly documented quarters with school children just months before he appeared on the credibly accused clergyman list released five years ago. Far from being punished by the Archdiocese, Hecker and Howell were among a number of priests who were receiving pension payments and allowances to cover living costs until the judge overseeing the bankruptcy case ordered the church to stop providing such benefits to credibly accused abusers or credibly abused accusers. Howell wrote a letter in reply saying it would be draconian for the judge to cut off his support from the church. The judge was unswayed, ordered that halt to the benefits for Howell and several other clerics who were considered credibly accused of molestation. Hecker has now been under investigation by the DA's office, which obtained records on the clergyman way back in June. That happened when the archbishop or the archdiocese turned over the files after prosecutors issued the church a subpoena demanding records on Howell, according to new court documents that were unsealed this very week. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen. And yes, I did say deaf boys. Boom, boom.
One or two deaf boys. Boom, boom. In the next room. Boom, boom. Now they're in the closet. Boom, boom. Between me and the broom. Boom, boom. Half a dozen deaf boys. Boom, boom. Mm, nice little crowd. Boom, boom. They can be quiet. Boom, boom. And I can be loud. Boom, boom. For a twenty deaf boys. Mm, take me all day. Boom, boom. Barely got the time to boom, boom. eat and to pray. Boom, boom. Deaf boys can't hear me coming. Deaf boys get my heartstrings to strumming. Make me make such a joyful noise. I just can't get enough. Can't get Deaf boys. Boom, boom. Half a hundred deaf boys. Boom, boom. Oh, I got a head of steam. Boom, boom. I could be the coach. Boom, boom. And they could be my team. Boom, boom. Eighty-eight deaf boys. Boom, boom. One for each key. Boom, boom. On the piano of my longing. Boom, boom. They play a hushed melody. Hundred fifty deaf boys. Boom, boom. Oh, this could get tight. Boom, boom. A few dozen in the morning. Boom, boom. And all the rest at night. Deaf boys can't hear me coming. Deaf boys, don't you dare call it slumming. Might be a drink in my priestly poise. But how can I resist deaf boys? If I had a deaf boy Each day of the year Three hundred and sixty-five That would be dear How many deaf boys Have there actually been? Why not ask how many Can dance on the head of a pin? The world is full of deaf boys and I'm only one man. All that God expects is do all that you can. Deaf boys can't hear me coming. Deaf boys got me hymning and humming. A shepherd with a closet full of toys. Let's hear it for those deaf boys. Speaking of um, people who live a um, holy kind of life, let's turn for a moment to Rudy Giuliani. News came out this week that he's uh, somewhat fixated on mammary glands, having been fingered, I'm sorry, um, identified by a former female assistant of his, as somebody who, in one occasion, said, those are my memories. Don't let anybody else near them. They belong to me. And he wasn't using the word memories. He's, uh, uh, as you know, 
involved in uh, several of the investigations by the special counsel, Jack Smith, into a uh, now appearing to be very sprawling enterprise trying to keep former President Trump from being former. And uh, one of the other people involved in that enterprise turns out to be an old friend of Rudy's. When Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York, he appointed Bernard Carrick as police chief. And uh, Carrick kept that job until, well, after 9-11, the uh, department established a uh, living facility for overstressed, overly stressed New York cops in the wake of 9-11. The police chief commandeered that residence as a love squad for himself and uh, a then prominent woman in New York media. The uh, then incoming Bush administration attempted to uh, name him, the, I believe, the first head of the uh, Department of Homeland Security, the, the new cabinet department established after 9-11, but uh, he wasn't able to take the job because uh, his nanny's papers regarding her ability to be in this country were not in order. Um, there's There were some other difficulties along the way and now here he is in uh, this present moment assisting Rudy Giuliani in the attempt to keep Donald Trump in or near the White House it's a nutty story Fleecing 
could Carrick care? It was three long months of training, then the crap, it started raining. So without complaining, Carrick was out of there. When Homeland needed security, Carrick was there. Archbishop apologized on the church's behalf this week to all those who've been hurt by people associated with a community led by a well-known exorcist. No, I didn't either. Archbishop Vaclav Dipo issued the apology in an August 7th letter after a probe into the Families Covenant Community Mamre, a private association of the faithful established in the year 2000 in the Archdiocese of Czestochowa, home to Poland's celebrated image of the Black Madonna. The Archbishop said the investigation had exposed significant irregularities in the way the community is managed and its activities. He confirmed he'd begun the search for a new leader of the community. Following the resignation of its founder, the exorcist father, Wodzimierz Siron, but Depo acknowledged that the group which operates throughout Poland had expanded significantly under Siram's leadership. According to local media, it has about 2,000 members. The Archbishop informed the community's members in a December 21, 2021 letter he decided to launch a visitation after receiving an anonymous letter containing detailed allegations about the, quote, 
improper functioning of the community and situations or attitudes that do not comply with the community's statutes, unquote. The Archdiocese released the Archbishop's letter to members with a statement saying that Siram's license to perform exorcisms would be suspended while the visitation, visitation took place. So there. California Attorney General Rob Bunta issued a formal apology this week for his office's role in the forced relocation and incarceration more than 120,000 Japanese Americans in camps during World War II. Cleaning up some uh, old business, the apology comes more than three years after the California legislature issued its own formal apology for the state's role in the internment program, which was ordered by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1942. It was supported by Earl Warren, who served as state attorney general and governor during the three years the system was in place. Quote, today my office formally apologizes for its, for its past use of legal tools to deprive a generation of Japanese Californians of their liberty and financial security during the World War II era, the California AG said in a statement. He continued, the forced relocation and incarceration of Japanese American citizens remains among the darkest periods of our history, and the suffering it caused Japanese American families across California is incalculable, unquote Bonta. He added, while the horrors of the past can never be erased, quote, we must take steps to atone for past wrongs by answering the call for accountability, truth and reconciliation, racial hearing, and transformation, unquote, the California AG. And saving the best for last, this week's announcement comes on the 35th anniversary of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which granted reparations to many of the Japanese Americans who'd been incarcerated during the war. Yes, I said reparations. Deadline London, Northern Ireland's top police officer, apologized this week for what he described as an industrial-scale data breach in which the personal information of more than 10,000 officers and staff were released to the public. The incident particularly sensitive given the delicate security situation in Northern Ireland, which is still trying to overcome decades of sectarian violence known as the Troubles. 25 years after a peace agreement largely ended the violence, many police officers continue to shield their identities because of continuing threats from dissident elements of the Republican and Unionist communities. The chief constable told reporters that dissident Republicans claim to be in possession of information about police officers circulating on WhatsApp following the recent incident, and that authorities are advising officers and staff about how to deal with that and any further risk they face. PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan, that's the Professional Golfers Association, he cited anxiety, anxiety, as the reason he took an unexpected break from his role. This follows the PGA Tour's proposed partnership merger with the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, the backers of LIV Golf, and the European-based DP World Tour. Quote, I was dealing with anxiety, which created physical and mental health uh, issues and challenges for me, Monaghan told reporters, according to ESPN. I needed to step away and to deal with that and understand how to 
develop the skills to deal with that going forward, he added. On June 13th, PGA Tour said Monaghan had been relieved of his day-to-day duties while he recuperated from a medical situation. He returned to his typical role just a month later. On June 6th, the PGA Tour sent shockwaves through the sport after announcing it came to an agreement to join forces with the golf-related commercial businesses and rights of the Saudi Arabian Investment Fund. It initiated an ongoing investigation by the U.S. Senate into the planned venture. The announcement was ineffective, and as a result, there was a lot of misinformation. I think any time you have misinformation, that can lead to distrust or mistrust, and that's my responsibility. It's nobody else's responsibility. That's me and me alone, Monahan said. As I've said, I take full re- accountability for that. At the same time, I apologize for putting players on their back foot. Unquote. Hard to play golf that way, isn't it? Despite the criticism, the commissioner remains bullish on the planned endeavor. Finally, you may, if you're into sports at all, college sports particularly, know that there's a um, sort of a um, shakeup going on in that world, um, sort of influenced by the rapidly rising TV deals with the um, groupings of colleges that engage in big league college sports, particularly basketball and football. And uh, some major institutions have left their previous groupings. UCLA and USC left the uh, Pac-12, and it's now down to the Pac-4. Sort of a sense of that's a loser place to be. Anyway, the uh, other schools involved in moving around, Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, and Colorado, uh, Colorado have gone over to the Big 12 Conference. And following that, Arizona State Athletic Director Ray Anderson made a comment he would not travel to the campus of West Virginia University. This week, he apologized for his comments on a local Arizona radio show, quote, those comments were said in jest and taken out of context, said Anderson. They were clumsy comments from me that I sincerely regret because I offended some people and no offense was intended. And for that, I apologize. I sincerely do, unquote. Anderson noted he and West Virginia University Vice President Ren Baker have known each other for quite some time, reached out to each other to... He did to Baker to personally apologize. We had a chance to talk. I explained the context. He graciously accepted my apology and certainly said he would pass it on to their president, Gordon G., whom I know, said Anderson. He explained the context of the comments. Quote, I don't like cold weather. It really gets cold there in the wintertime. And that's what I was jesting with Arizona State University President Michael Crow about. Conference realignment had brought about drastic change to the landscape of college athletics and can understandably be frustrating for administers, but the two athletic directors look forward to working together in the future. Anderson also shared that he's previously visited Morgantown. I've been there. It's a beautiful, beautiful college town, 
they got a nice stadium there. I know they're good folks back, folks back there, and no offense was intended, and I look forward to visiting. Unquote. Because he was tired of repeating the same thing over and over again. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. gentlemen that's that's it that's all the little show for this week back next week the same time same radio stations at the same time as I say or a whole different time when you're listening on your audio device of choice and it will be just like Rudy Giuliani learning how to talk to a female assistant if You'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much, uh huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for the broadcast, your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts, what? And uh, all sorts of other stuff to read and laugh at and wonder about in your declining years, all at harryshearer.com. And me? Yeah, I'm still there at that place, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions, originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs> <laughs>